You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. It's good to be here, and we are in the third of four weeks on this series. Uh, we're calling Seculus, which is a combination of secular and religious. And you might be going like, what? Yeah, it's a made-up word, okay? And I wasn't that creative. It actually, um, I read a book uh, this last summer called Seculosity by David Zoll. And in it, he's a Christian author, and he said, um, everything has become church, basically. That is, what used to be religious where you knew what was religious, traditional religion is giving away in the United States, and all of a sudden everybody's more or less secular, but at the same time everything is taking on religious significance so that um, romance, as we talked about last week, I ruined romance right before Valentine's Day for you. <laughs> romance, just our busy schedules, um, everything seems to be doing this, right? Um, you can find people who are like, on a religious quest about the food that they put in their body. Do you notice that? Have you ever met anybody who will just talk your ear off about what's pure and impure about food, and they want to cleanse themselves? Those are spiritual words, by the way, and we're talking about stuff that's going into your body, and that gets a li- And Jesus said, it's not what goes into your body, it's what comes out of you that makes a difference about purity, okay? Um, yeah, I remember I had a Haitian cleanse uh, a year ago. I don't know if I remember. I came back from Haiti, and boy, did I have a cleanse for about a week and a half. But I don't think it purified me in any form. It just, I lost a little weight. Not the way to do it. Anyways, um, today we're looking at a third area, probably the most prominent in our society, of how we try to find our significance, our identity, our selves, our salvation. And you know what it's in? Work. And if it's not, it's in your leisure. So we're going to be looking at work and leisure. And we're going to start with a passage from the Gospel of Luke as kind of the basis of what we're talking about. So you can follow along on the screen or on your smartphone or tablet uh, through the U version of the app under events. You can find us there. But let's read Luke 6. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read that David, what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and, took the, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, And he also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there, and Jesus said to him, them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said, all he said to him, stretch out your hand. 
And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Work and leisure. I know we all have different relationships with that, and I want to recognize that. Some of you right now are looking for work. You're looking for more work, that you're struggling right now to make ends meet. You're trying to figure out how it's going to work. And so you would like to have something more to do to be able to take care of your life and your family more work. There's others, though, that... um, They don't want to work. (laughs) In fact, what they struggle with work because they struggle with any motivation to do the job that's in front of them, and they might even procrastinate. We'll get into that a little uh, later. And still others put all their energy into their work so that they have nothing outside of work. I mean, they are just consumed by it, and we have people like that in our society. And still others say, work? No, I don't put my... but you are religious about your leisure, and so, so much so that your leisure consumes your life, and your schedule is just totally full with all the stuff you've got to do because you're trying to have fun. Now, all of this is going on in a society that back in the 1930s, there was a man named John Maynard Keynes. Have you ever heard of Keynesian economics? He was the economist that predicted in the 21st century, if things kept going the way he thought they would, that we would all be down to a 15, 15, not 50, 15 hour work week. We'd have so much leisure time because everything would be so productive. Yeah, that's not happened. 50 is more like it, not 15. But we have a wacky way of handling work in our society. Judith Shulevitz wrote in the New York Times op-ed a while back called Bring Back the Sabbath. It's worthy of a Google search to find this article, okay? She said this, there is ample evidence that our relationship to work is out of whack. Economists, psychologists, and sociologists have charted our ballooning work hours, the increase in time devoted to competitive shopping, the commercialization of leisure that turns fun into work and requires military-scale budgeting and logistics and emotionally draining interactions with service personnel. Our society is, ours is a society that pegs status to overachievement. We can't help admiring workaholics. Amazing, huh? We can't help it at all. So we work and we are tired. We then try to pursue leisure things and they make us even more tired. We rest physically, but our minds continue to spin and spin and spin. How many of you don't wake up in the middle of the night and your mind is just racing away? Huh? Yeah. We are overstressed, overstimulated, and we're always trying to, over-focused on trying to solve this work, leisure, rest, balance in our lives, and nobody seems to be doing it because really, when it comes down to it, without Jesus being the Lord of Sabbath, it ain't going to work. Work just isn't going to work. So today, we're going to look at this passage and a number of others and just kind of the whole broad spectrum of Scripture uh, from Genesis on that kind of portrays how God intended work to be a good thing in your life and rest to be an integral part of your life and His presence to be in all of it. So we're going to look at these three things. First of all, why we need rest. Okay? 
where we don't get our rest, and finally, where we may rest. Okay, got it? Those three. First of all, why we need rest. And um, this was fascinating. I was doing a Google search. I sometimes do that. And Derek Thompson, who writes for the Atlantic Magazine, he wrote an op-ed piece a year ago, February 2019. And this is what it looks like. Okay, this was the beginning. Workism is making Americans miserable, it says. And now look at the subtitle. This was so amazing because he just says this. For the college-educated elite, work has morphed into a religious identity, promising transcendence and community, but failing to deliver. This one's worth reading as well. So work has changed. It used to be you worked to make a living. Now your work is your living. And for so many, they are trying to find in work what work cannot give you. Okay? It's metastasized, as he says, into workism, a belief, a myth that's widely held in our society that you put all your eggs in that basket and you're going to find everything in it. And it's going to be you're at least going to be successful, whatever that means. Now, there are four things that really have pushed this, I think, four trends. Um, and it's just a reality. Um, the first is that basically more and more in our Western culture, jobs are, there's job insecurity. I mean, aren't you always kind of looking over your shoulder wondering how long I'm going to keep this? Because somebody is going to create some robot who can take my place. Or somebody over in another country can do it cheaper. So we're always insecure about our jobs. And it used to be when my parents were growing up, you got involved in a corporation. You had a job for life. You were secure in that. Now, I think the average person at least works seven different jobs over the course of their working, day, uh, working life because nothing is secure. Well, we're always afraid of losing our job, and so we're going to be stressed about trying to do a better job and make sure that we're putting in all the hours that we could possibly put in to keep it. That's one trend. Secondly, people at the top of corporations, have you noticed, they are making like 100 times what the average worker is making now. Now, you, you don't realize what that golden handshake is like. That means those individuals often feel like, I better put in 100 hours a week in order to justify that I'm being paid 100 times more than everybody else. It's kind of scary. They're, that's all they do. That's all their life is. And then those people who are on the bottom have to work multiple jobs just to make ends meet. That's the trends in our society right now. Uh, the third trend, technology, isn't it so wonderful? Now you can work anywhere, which means you have to work everywhere. And work is spilling over into every aspect of your life. There is not, and I am really guilty of that myself. I get home, and you know what I do? I work. Oh, I turn on the TV, and then I've got my laptop open, and I'm grading papers. Yeah, maybe that's why sometimes your grades don't come out so good, because, you know, <laughs> I'm not quite focused. But... <laughs> I shouldn't tell you that. <laughs> I've got a couple students here in my one class. <laughs> anyway, but um, it's amazing how that happens. And then finally, I think this is the one that's been the trend across America. America has always, always placed work as the center of the identity of our people. You know, traditional cultures, 
Their meaning and their significance were in their relationships within their family. And work was not the center of who they were. We've been taught and told, you make your own life. It's not who you're related to. It's not where you come from. It's what you do with what you've got. And so we've been telling everyone to choose a destination, try to attain it, and only when you reach that destination will you have significance and worth. Wow. So Derek Thompson in this article said this, a culture that funnels its dreams of self-actualization into salary jobs is setting itself up for a collective anxiety, mass disappointment, and inevitable burnout. Yeah, I shouldn't be telling this to college students because now they're going like, yeah, so I shouldn't even get a job. <laughs> yeah, I know. So, you know, what's funny about all this um, I don't know if you've um, ever studied the history of Christianity. So the Reformation happened about 500 years ago. And um, during that time, the big emphasis was on the idea of you are not saved by the good works that you do, right? We've come back around to believing that we are still saved, but we just take the good out of it. You're saved by your work. Work becomes your salvation. Work becomes your destiny. Work becomes everything. So this is what Derek Thompson again says in that article. The problem with this gospel, your dream job is out there, so never stop hustling, is that it's a blueprint for spiritual and physical exhaustion. Long hours don't make anybody more productive or creative. They make people stressed, tired, and bitter. So we're exhausted, but we're still believing somehow I can find the right job, and then everything will be OK. Hmm. I think the psalmist understood this well before the 21st century, back, you know, what, 3,000-ish years ago. Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor it, uh, build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Doesn't that sound like today? Now, here's the line, here's the key. For he, God, gives to his beloved sleep. It's a gift. You're not going to get it from your work. It's never enough. You won't be enough. That's not where your enough comes from. Now, others might be saying, hey, my problem is that I don't try to work hard. I just keep putting things off. You know, procrastination is my middle name. Actually, 20% of Americans now, uh, in a study done by the American Psychological Association in 2010, says 20% of Americans are chronic procrastinators. Now, here's the key. It's not that you just put things off. It's that you put things off and then are stressed and worried about it. And then it just keeps building up. So David Saul says, uh, procrastination then consists of more than delayed activity, but a delayed activity that induces guilt. That means that 20% of Americans feel acute guilt over not getting things done in a timely manner or not working efficiently enough. And I could ask for a show of hands whether you're part of that 20% that feel like you never get enough done and you're beating yourself up. You're flagellating your psyche again and again, like, I can't believe I wasted the whole day. Is that what you say? Hmm. 
2,800 years ago or so, the writer of Ecclesiastes puts it well. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is also vanity and a great evil. You work, you work, you work, and then you don't get to, re you don't get to the rewards of your work. It goes to other people, maybe, and it's like feeling like despair. The book of Ecclesiastes, by the way, is a great long drawn out poetic version of despair. <laughs> but it's a reality, I think, because basically we'll get to it. Without God, no matter what you're pursuing in any religious form, in any quest, is never going to be enough. It's just not going to be enough. So you might go like, okay, so I realize work doesn't work as my salvation, and procrastinating doesn't actually balance out my life. So where do I get my rest? And this is where most people today are turning to leisure. But have you noticed how religiously obsessed people are about their leisure now? They, it almost tires you out thinking about it. I mean, think about how people have turned leisure into this never-ending pursuit of enough stuff. I know parents who they live in their SUV or minivan because they are carting their kids to three different sporting, dance, sports, this event, that event, here, there, and everywhere. And they're eating dinner in their vans between these events. They finally get home about 9.30, 10 o'clock at night, exhausted. The whole family. Because they got to do, is this enough leisure? Yeah, isn't that fascinating? David Zoll said, Let's see, I'm sorry. Play is no longer the enemy of efficiency or willful alternative to work. It's another road to accomplishment, productive enough to warrant inclusion on the schedule of human affairs. The message is clear. Play well enough, and you will increase your score, so don't mess up. Here's a joke. How do you know somebody's going to a CrossFit gym? Exactly. Don't worry. They'll tell you and tell you and tell you and how so much better they are because of it. It's a religious, it's almost like a cult. Am I against exercise? No. But it's amazing. We are putting into our leisure, into our work, somehow we're going to have enough and we're going to be somebody if we just do these things right. It's funny, even those who say, oh, I'm not doing that, I'm trying to be mindful. You know, mindfulness, kind of Buddhism light these days, uh, it's a good thing. It can be very good to de-stress. So funny now, because now, because there's a commercial uh, kind of trend in it, uh, you know, you can get on your um, iPhone or on your smartphone a couple different apps like Headspace or Calm, which will track how often you are being mindful. And you can go for a competitive streak to be better than other people at mindfulness. <laughs> Competitive mindfulness? Isn't that an oxymoron? Oh my gosh, we're just turning anything into a competition of being better than other people at it. And as such, it's not going to give us enough. 
This is what David Zoll says. Here we have a textbook example of how a spiritual practice becomes a religious one. Something helpful turns into something justifying. Something grace-based sours into something legalistic. It mirrors the way many Christians experience regular church-going or individual quiet times. What starts out as a respite turns into a ladder. This doesn't mean that a mindful brain isn't a whole lot happier and more peaceful than a distracted, anxious one. It just means the real disease isn't fatigue, it's sin. We can turn anything into a self-justifying mechanism to look better than other people, even something like meditation or mindfulness. And it doesn't work. And Ecclesiastes, a long time ago, said it. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. Here is the kicker. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Do you understand our Western civilization for a long time has been trying to get the benefits of having a God without God? We want the stuff of God the peace that passes all human understanding. We want the joy of God. We want the love of God, but we want it on our terms and our ways where we can control it. It doesn't work. That's what seculus is. It's saying, let's get God out of the picture and do it ourselves, and it just all falls apart because without him, who can find enjoyment? Or who can find rest? So where can we find rest? So we looked at Luke today. We're finally getting to that. Luke chapter 6. And there are two or three instant, two different Sabbaths in a row. Jesus is breaking the Sabbath. It's driving the Pharisees nuts. Because um, they had kind of a saying back then that if everybody in Israel kept the Sabbath perfectly, Two Sabbaths in a row, the Messiah would come. And so Jesus breaks two Sabbaths in a row, and they're ready to kill him at the end of that second one. If you saw, they're furious at him. You know why he does? He is the Messiah, and the Messiah has come. He's trying to show them in a backward way who he is and what he's about. So we read the first Sabbath where he, quote, breaks the Sabbath. That is their rules, their traditions that they had come up with. He and his disciples are so hungry, they're walking through a field of wheat, and they're grabbing the grain and rubbing it between their hands um, to just get the husks off of it and eating it. And, you know, that's considered according to not anything in the scriptures, but according to the traditions of the Pharisees. That's work. You're harvesting You can't do that on the Sabbath. You're breaking the rules. And Jesus looks at them and says, wait a minute. He doesn't throw out the idea of Sabbath, by the way. He doesn't say, no, nobody needs rest. No, that's all superstition. No, he does not say anything about that. He instead refers to an incident in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 21, where David was on the lamb. He was running away from Saul who wanted to kill him. He and his soldiers were so hungry, they came to the tabernacle of God, talked to the priests, and grabbed the showbread, which is in the holy place, only to be eaten by the priests. And they ate it and left. In a pinch, the rules, the ceremonial rules, were changed for the sake of human life. Okay? 
And David was never condemned for doing that. And Jesus is saying, look, you know, the Sabbath, who was it made for? Human beings were not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for human beings. And so, in a pinch, we don't have to follow these rules because they're ceremonial. They're obsolete. They're going away. Now, the moral law didn't change. God's commandments didn't change. But these ceremonial laws, and well, you might say, well, why are they obsolete? Well, that's the next line where Jesus says, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That is an amazing, shocking, revolutionary statement. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. It's astounding. And I'm sure the Pharisees and the scribes that had criticized him just had their jaws wide open at the moment. Like, what are you saying? Because I can't get into everything he's saying in this, but I can at least share a few things. First of all, he's saying... I am the one who all these Sabbath regulations is pointed to. Those regulations are superseded because I'm here now. You don't need them in the same way. I am the Lord of Sabbath. I am the one who can give you rest. I'm the one who makes the day holy. I'm the one that you need to be set aside for. If you want to have rest, Jesus is saying, you're going to have to come to me. If you've gone to him and you haven't still been at rest because I'm restless as well, it's because I'm not realizing what I have in him. I haven't made it my own. I haven't appropriated it all. It's time to see rest isn't simply stopping activity. It's not about these rules of don't do this today. There's something more going on. So, for instance, where did the Sabbath start? When did this all start? It starts back in the first chapter to the second chapter of Genesis in the first account of God's creating of the world. He wove it in to just the rhythms of this planet that you need to stop, you need to rest. It's fascinating. So Genesis 1.31, this is how it says, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. This is on the sixth day. So what we start finding out is that God, um, every day he made something, or he separated light from darkness, or whatever he did, at the end of the day, he declared it good. It's good. It's good. And on the sixth day, it's very good. And then the next passage in Genesis 2, which the, it should... The chapter is divided in the wrong place in Genesis, okay? It should have gone to chapter 2, verse 4, actually, for the first chapter. But, you know, I don't know who did it in the Middle Ages. It was some, some monk somewhere. I can't remember his name. And anyway, so um, it says this. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from his work that he had done in creation. Now, was God tired? No. He didn't rest because he was tired. He didn't need to be replenished. This is God, but he rested. According to Genesis then, rest is really not about just being physically tired. Rest is about 
being satisfied with the job done. So rest is to be utterly satisfied with what has been done and to be able to say, good, it's finished, accomplished, done. Nothing more needs to be done. It's all good. It's very good. That's fascinating, isn't it? Now, the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament picks this up. In Hebrews chapter 4, he says this, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. It's a fascinating definition of what it means to be a follower of Jesus here. Notice that? So the New Testament, there are many different definitions of what it means to follow Jesus, to trust in Jesus, to be saved by Jesus, to be a Christian. Here's one of them, and it tells us something fascinating, okay? It says, those who follow Jesus are the ones who can look at their lives and be satisfied with what has been done. Isn't that fascinating? Those who trust in Jesus are those who can look at their life work and say, ah, good. And you might be going like at the moment, I can't say that. My work is never done. My work is never done enough. I've never done it well enough. I've never been perfect at anything. So how in the world am I going to ever say good, like God said good? And that's why the writer of Hebrews is telling us, you don't look at your work. You don't look at your leisure. You look at his work for you. You look at what Jesus has done for you. Christ's work given to you as a gift. Given to you as a gift. He gives rest to his beloved. He gives you rest. It's a gift. Now, a long time ago, in the Protestant Reformation, there was a man named Martin Luther who wrote about this in what he's called the Heidelberg Disputation. And he says this, He is not righteous who does much, but he who without work believes much in Christ. The law says do this and it is never done. Grace says believe in this and everything is already done. Isn't that cool? So when Jesus said he's Lord of the Sabbath... He means it's already done. It's already taken care of. There's nothing more to do. Can you say that? It is accomplished. Okay, no, I changed the words. It is accomplished. There's nothing more to do. There is nothing more that you need to do. It's been given to you. It's all done. Now, when Jesus said that, in Luke chapter 6, like I said, the Pharisees were furious with him for breaking the Sabbath two in a row according to their rules and laws. That he actually did work or healed on the Sabbath just freaked them out and they were furious with them. And that fury moved them to plot, finally, his death. And ironically, it is when Jesus dies on the cross that he truly becomes the Lord of Sabbath, the Lord of rest. Now, I know there's a lot of um, viewpoints, uh, 
movies and things, and sometimes we get these images of Jesus on the cross that he's just kind of hanging out, checking out his watch, going like, okay, I got about three more hours. I can get through this, you know. Or that he's in kind of this beatific vision state where everything's just like, oh, and he can kind of like, he's above it all and beyond it all, and he's not feeling, no, that is not scriptural at all. There's no account. Of course, yes, the Gospel of John will say he's on his throne, that this is where he reigns from the cross, it uses that he glorifies God through his death. But the reality of that death and that struggle on the cross, he is in agony. He is restless. He is grabbing for every breath he can get. He cries out in pain. He is not calm. It's fascinating. And you know why he's not calm? Because of everything that's placed upon him. There's a passage in the prophet Isaiah that says, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Jesus is restless and in agony upon the cross because God has made him the wickedness of the world there. It's fascinating. Paul says, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And so Jesus lives the life I should have lived and he dies the death I should have died and he gives me all the benefit of the work that he's done. It is accomplished. That is his last words. It is finished. There's nothing more to do. There's nothing to add. There's nothing to change. It's all given. So the question is, how does that sink into your life? Okay? Because you're still creatures, and this does not invalidate the idea of actually resting, taking breaks, etc. In fact, it's the opposite. You get to rest. And, and I think there's two inner principles you need to understand about what this means, that Sabbath, taking a break, resting. The first is that Sabbath is a statement of liberation. It was true for the Israel that they were no longer slaves in Egypt so they could rest, is what God said. When you take a break and you stop and you are declaring, I am not a slave, my work does not define me. It is Jesus Christ and his work that defines me. I am free, for he has set me free. That's an important thing to do, every, to remember that every day, and to actually take time to stop and not work. Stop and not pursue leisure in such a work-related way. A second inner one is Sabbath is a declaration of trust. You know, there's so many, there are a lot of people, you probably know some, that seem like the world is going to end if they stop working. Oh my goodness, I can't stop because what, what will happen if it's like you declare every time you take a break, God is God and I am not. He can handle the world without me for a few minutes. I can rest. It's an important, important principle. And then in practical ways, there are five things I, I would encourage you to consider. The first is to take more Sabbath time, to actually say, you know what? I'm stopping today. We are going to enjoy the day, and I am going to not 
spend all day trying to do all sorts of chores all the time. Rest. To balance your Sabbath time. That is, um, some of it should be um, active pursuits of things. You know, enjoy certain things and activities, but not like you're keeping track of everything that you're doing. Look at what I got done but also contemplative, where you do meditate on God's word. You take time. We talked about that, I think, last week a little, just just the 10 minutes a day to just be spending time with God in prayer contemplatively. And then pursuing things that don't really even, you know, that uh, leave margin in your life where you have nothing planned. What a thought. Thirdly, I think take many Sabbaths even at work, during work. You know, get up from the desk for 10 minutes. Stop studying for a few minutes. Do something different. Take time in the middle and confess, Lord, you're Lord of the Sabbath. You're Lord of my day. You're Lord of all this work. I don't have to be a slave to it all. And even if I got it all done, that doesn't define me. You do. Fourthly, it's really be part of a Sabbath community. Why we've been doing these hangouts Why we have home huddles is really because it's a Sabbath community. Now, Sunday is not my day of rest, by the way. Okay? No, Friday. Friday is basically my day of rest. And I try to fit Friday from doing a lot of people. Oh, can you do this on Friday? Nope. You know? I need a day off. Now, I know a lot of people think pastors only work on Sundays. I get it. I know. But you take time, you take and be part of a Sabbath community. So our hangouts on Sunday nights are really, we don't have an agenda often, you know? Let's play games, let's eat, let's celebrate. We are celebrating Sabbath every week in one form or another. And yeah, it's a little work to put it together, but not that much. And it's one of the most enjoyable parts of my week. We'd love to have you included in that. And then finally, really what we're saying is you need to be hearing it as a word of grace. None of these things are hard, fast rules that you better do. And if you don't do it, you're not making it. Because the word of grace is your identity is not tied to your work. Your identity is not tied to your performance of Sabbath. I've done a good job of not doing anything for a while. Is not a way to get farther with God. We're going to end with this quote I thought kind of sums up a lot. And this is, again, back from Martin Luther 500 years ago, but I think it ties in, and I'll show you some of it. He says, it's impossible to gain peace of conscience by methods and means of this world. What people are really looking for from their work or their leisure is peace of conscience. It's to have that stop, that act, to, to, not, to be able to say it's good. It's finished. I don't have to. It's I'm okay. I'm enough. I have enough. You're not going to get it from any of the methods and means this world is. It's got to be given to you. He says experience proves as various holy orders have been launched for the purpose of securing peace of conscience through religious exercises, but they prove failures because such devices only increase doubt and despair. Have I done it enough? Have I done it well enough? We find no rest for our weary bones unless we cling to the word of grace. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the only one who's going to fulfill your work and you get to hear from him, through him, the Father's word over your life where he looks at you and says, very good. 
Very good. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Lord God, you know how restless we are and how everything's been chaotic and our lives and how we've pursued identity and purpose and meaning from our work in such ways that it's never meant to be that. We only find it in you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for the finished work that you have done for us and that you've welcomed us and that we can be a people of grace, that we can rest, have a deep, soulful rest in you. Bless us this week, O oh Lord, that our lives are not so caught up in the distractions of this world that would tempt us to try to find our identity in other things. Help us, Lord, by your spirit to focus on what you have given us already in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.